Well, brothers and sisters, once again, it is a great joy and privilege to be gathered with you and to do so under the reading and the preaching of God's Word. So I would invite you to open up in your Bibles this morning to Psalm 130. Psalm 130, and as you were doing so, I would ask you to stand for the reading of God's Holy Word. Psalm 130, and we are going to read the entirety of the psalm this morning, beginning in verse 1. Psalm 130, let us give our attention now to the word of the Lord. A song of ascents. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities... O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits, and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning, more than watchmen for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord. For with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption. And he will redeem Israel. From all his iniquities. And thus ends this reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. You may be seated. I don't know about you, but I've been to a number of concerts over the course of my life. I've always enjoyed music. And I have found, probably much like you, that concerts give a unique experience. Unlike listening to albums at home, a concert is something of a communal experience. That's because you, you hear those around you singing, you see them dancing, plus the, the, the band itself is live. So it's, it's a whole another way to sort of be immersed into the music. It's different than you sitting at home on your couch listening to a CD or whatever you do on your phones. Over the years, I've also found myself doing something. I don't know if this is unique to me, but if I know we're going to be going to a concert and I have ample notice, my wife surprises me sometimes, but in the event that I know, I'll I'll begin listening to that band leading up to it. And and I suspect that it probably has something to do with with me sort of wanting to be prepared. I want to set the mood. I want to be ready for this concert experience. And before you shake your head at me and think I'm weird... I want you to know that I'm not altogether alone in this. In fact, the ancient people of God had something of a similar practice. As you may know, under the Old Covenant, all the able-bodied men of the Jewish community, they were required three times a year to make a pilgrimage to Jerusalem. And they would assemble in the holy city, and they would do so for Passover and for Pentecost and for the Feast of of tabernacles. And I want you to understand, this pilgrimage, this wasn't a vacation. It was a holy time. It was a holy time because this was the specific time in which all of God's people would gather together in one place for worship. And because these pilgrimages were of a holy nature, the people would sing songs that would help prepare themselves for what they were getting ready to do. What songs would they sing, you ask? 
maybe to put it in today's context, but what was on their playlists? Well, the answer, at least in part anyway, is what is in front of us this morning. Psalm 130 is part of a collection in the Psalter called Songs of Ascent or Pilgrim Songs. And this collection, it begins in Psalm 120, and it goes all the way through Psalm 134. This is the album they would sing along to as they journeyed from their home up to the temple. Now, as I've said, they are referred to pilgrim songs because the people of God were on a pilgrimage. But I also want you to know that this same set of songs were often referred to as songs of ascent. And that's because in the scriptures, the holy city, Jerusalem, the temple, it was always up. It was up on a hill wherever you were coming from so that you would always have to be going up to it or you would ascend. So again, the people of God, they would make this trek. And as they were going up to Jerusalem to worship God, they would sing these songs to prepare their hearts. And the psalm in front of us, Psalm 130, it was track number 10. So as we continue our sermon series through some of the various psalms, we're going to focus on this one in particular this morning. And I want to say at the front end, what I really want you to, to see and hear and feel and believe and understand is that this psalm itself, it, like the psalms of ascent, it itself goes from low to high. This psalm ascends. It goes from the depths to the heights, from the ocean floor to the heavens above, from the depths of anguish to the heights of assurance. Now to grasp this, don't miss how the psalm begins. It does so, does it not, with a cry of utter desperation. You can not only hear it in the first couple of verses, but you can almost feel the pain and despair in the psalmist's voice, can you not? They sing, out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. This idea of coming from the depths, it's a common metaphor in the Scriptures. More literally, of course, it refers to actually being underwater, the, the waves washing over you. Think Jonah, for example. But here, it's the picture of being in deep, deep trouble. It's despair. It's true, the psalmist is completely dry, but he feels as if the waves of God's judgment are washing over him which immediately lets us know something of the context of this psalm. It is one of utter struggle, anguish, even oppression. The psalmist is desperate. He's hit rock bottom. From his perspective, things can't get any worse. The x-ray has come back, and it is, in fact, a tumor. 
The company is downsizing, and that means you are out the door. Your wife has left. Your son or daughter has died. The point is, your heart is heavy. Your mind is numb. And your soul is exhausted. That's the psalmist. And can we just be honest and say, church, so often, that's real life, isn't it? Life is hard. Life is depressing. And so in this state of desperation, where does the psalmist turn? And of course, he turns to the only one he can turn to. He cries out, to God. And so let me just say this now, whether you are a Christian or not, please hear me, you are never too far gone to cry out to Christ. It's true that the waves of struggle might be washing over you and you've swallowed a ton of water. You are sure that you've got nothing left then would you not, like the psalmist, cry out to God? Spurgeon remarks, under the floods, prayer lived and struggled. So saint or sinner, cry out to God. Cry out even now. Know this, Christ delights to hear and respond and save those who cry out to him in utter desperation. You have to understand, that's Christ's specialty. Christ came not to save the righteous, but sinners. It is his delight to save those who are in need. The problem, of course, is that some people, maybe even you, some are woefully prideful, altogether stubborn. They won't cry out to God even in their desperation. They think, I got myself into this mess, and you know what? I'm going to get myself out of this mess. Or they reason among themselves, within themselves, there's no point. God won't accept me anyway. Or they think some thought like, I'm not even worthy to receive His grace. My friend, that is all pride. Even the the pseudo-humility, I'm not worthy to receive His grace, even that is pride. It's just pride. Lift your voice. Cry out to Christ. He promises to hear you. He promises to hear, especially when you are in desperation. You'll quickly notice, though, in the psalm, you can begin to see the ascent of the psalm itself. It moves from a cry of desperation till it blossoms into a cry of affirmation. You can see the shift in verse 3. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. 
Catch this. The psalmist is in trouble. The waves are overtaking him. That's verse 1. So in verse 2, in his desperation, he cries out for mercy. And now in verse 3, he confesses his sin, doesn't he? Which means, stay with me here, chances are the trouble that he found himself in verse 1, it was all of his own making. That is to say, verse 1 is the fruit of the sin in his life. That's why in verse 3, he acknowledges his sin. And that's why in verse 4, he leans into the promise of forgiveness that is found in God's gospel. Now, I say that for two reasons. On the one hand, I want to press to the forefront of your heart what I just said a moment ago. You are never too far gone to cry out to the Lord Jesus Christ. Sure, you might have hit rock bottom, but the arm of Christ is long and mighty to save. He can reach you no matter how far you've fallen. My friend, don't think for a moment that you have out the grace of God. Romans 5.20 announces, Where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Don't think for a moment that you are beyond God's rescue. Don't preach a false gospel to yourself that comes with a hiss and it goes like this. I'm too far gone. There there is no hope for me. I can't be forgiven. Pastor, you don't know what I've done. You don't know the things I've done or, or been a part of. You're right, and I don't want to know. But I promise you this. Christ delights to save sinners. And Christ delights to save not just sinners, but the worst of sinners, the vilest of sinners. So take your sin to Him. Cry out for mercy. For Christ promises to be a perfect and sufficient Savior for all who look to Him. And brother or sister, that includes you. That's the first reason that I labor to show you that the psalmist is in a sin bed of his own making. The second is for this purpose, and I ask you the question, what will you do with your sin? What will you do with your guilt, with your shame, with your iniquity? As verse 3 confesses, if God were to mark iniquities, maybe think about it this way, if God were to keep score, who could stand? Who could stand? You see, God is infinitely and perfectly holy and righteous and just. Which means that He requires of us perfect holiness and perfect righteousness and perfect justice. But does not a moment's reflection reveal that we have fallen short? We are all like the psalmist, sinners in need. None of us, none of us, not even you, my friend, can stand before God, at least not on your own two feet. 
And so here's the temptation then. Here's how we might be tempted to treat our sin. Three responses. All of them come from the pit and will drag you there and keep you there. Three responses. It's not true. It's not my fault. It's not so bad. For starters, we are tempted to say, it's not true. How dare you? I'm not a sinner. I haven't broke God's law. I'm righteous in and of myself. Oh, my friend. Church, that is cancer. In fact, it's worse than cancer. It's having cancer and saying the tumor is actually your friend. Such a one who acts like this, that soul is blind and destined only for hell. And the reason is this. You cannot find the forgiveness offered in Christ until you first realize that you stand in need of forgiveness from Christ. Another response could be this. You might say, it's not my fault. My sin's not my fault. Sure, I have sinned against God, but it's because of my upbringing. It's the job that I have. My wife and kids bring it out of me. I'm just born that way. It's who I am. I can't help it. My friend, zoom out for a minute. That lazy defense wouldn't stand in an earthly court. What makes you think it will stand in the heavenly court? Finally, another temptation we face with respect to our sin is this. It's not that bad. We tell ourselves these slogans, no one is perfect. I'm not that bad of a guy. We say, well, am I perfect? No, of course not. But but really, who is? We deceive ourselves into thinking that God grades on a curve instead of what he reveals to us in his word, which is that we all fall woefully short of the glorious holiness and utter perfection of Christ. If you hear nothing else, hear this. Christ is the standard, not the person next to you. Christ is the standard. So these are all disastrous ways of thinking about our sin. It's not true. It's not my fault. It's not so bad. And so often we just drink this stuff down, not knowing that we are guzzling Drano. The only right response, church, the only appropriate and life-giving and freedom-giving response is the one found before us. It is, verse 3, to acknowledge that we are sinners. And then, in verse 4, we run. We make a beeline to God where we will find forgiveness. Verse 2 should echo in our souls. We should say with the psalmist, but with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. We must say and sing and shout with the aged John Newton, who said at the end of his life, my memory is nearly gone, but I remember two things, that I am a great sinner and that Christ is a great Savior. Is this not our confession, beloved? 
we say, God, look upon Christ's perfect life, not mine. For His righteousness is all I need. God, look upon Christ's sin-bearing death. For on that tree He paid the penalty for the sin that I owe. God, look upon Christ's resurrection. For He has promised that like Him, I too will overcome sin, death, hell, and Satan. You see, this is the heart of the Christian. This is the song of the Christian, is it not? Verse 4, with Christ there is forgiveness. This whole thing reminds me of John Wesley's conversion. As some of you may know, Wesley was converted in 1738 as he sat, catch this, as he sat and listened to a reading from Martin Luther's preface to his commentary on the book of Romans. What you probably don't know is that earlier that same day, Wesley was present in a chapel service where he heard the choir sing Psalm 130. He sat and heard this psalm sung in his ears. And in the hand of the Holy Spirit, this psalm was like a scalpel. And God was doing surgery on Wesley's heart. He heard the law of verse 3 and his utter need. And he heard the gospel of verse 4 and the utter sufficiency of Christ. In a very real way for Wesley, it was as if the cry of the psalmist was his own cry and the word of the gospel was God's answer to him. Church, this is why we say Christ and Christ alone is our standing. We join with the Apostle Paul in Philippians 3.3. We put no confidence in the flesh. I know that in me, that is in my flesh, there dwells no good thing, Romans 7.18. As the old hymn taught us to sing, I need no other argument, I need no other plea. It is enough that Jesus died and that he died for me. Church, it's that cry of affirmation, that holding tightly to the gospel of grace that leads to an altogether different cry in this psalm, a cry of expectation. Again, don't miss the ascent. At the beginning of the psalm, he's toast. But now, by the time you reach, reach verses 5 and 6, the same psalmist is expectant. He cries out, I wait for the Lord. My soul waits, and in His word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning, more than watchmen for the morning. I ask you, what is the psalmist doing? Not nothing. He's waiting. Waiting is not nothing. He's waiting. It's sung three times. Beginning of verse 5, I wait for the Lord. Middle of verse 5, my soul waits. Beginning of verse 6, my soul waits. He's waiting. And you know what? We hate to wait. 
don't we? Waiting is so hard. I was stuck in the Wendy's drive-thru line last week for eight minutes, and I thought the world was coming to an end. We're just not people who wait. We don't like to wait in the drive-thru. We don't like to wait for nobody or nothing, especially for God, especially for His promises, especially for His Word to come to pass. But nevertheless, that is where the psalmist finds himself, and that is exactly where we so often find ourselves. We're waiting. Just as the guards stood upon the walls of the city, watching in the darkness for danger and waiting expectantly for the safety that daylight would bring. So we find ourselves, Bibles in hand, waiting, waiting on God. More than watchmen for the morning, we are waiting. More than watchmen for the morning. We wait. We wait for deliverance. We wait for healing or restoration. We wait for Christ's return. We wait for heaven. We wait for glory. We wait for resurrection. We wait for reward. We wait for eternity. We wait and we wait and we wait. We wait for the gospel to be fully realized and experienced in our lives. We wait and we wait and we wait. We wait for faith to give way to sight. And again, perhaps the most difficult part of all of this waiting is that you don't do anything. Even worse, you can't do anything. You can't speed it up. I remember being little and Christmas getting closer, you know, like in August. And it's just not there yet. And there's nothing that you can do to speed up time. Christian, you must learn to wait. And you must wait to learn. You must learn to wait. And you must wait to learn. I think one of the reasons that God does this in our lives. One of the reasons, if you've noticed this, if you've been walking with Jesus for more than like five minutes, you'll very quickly notice that your timetable and God's timetable rarely line up. It doesn't work that way. And I think one of the reasons that God is in the business of screwing up our plans and our timetables is that learning to wait is intimately connected with learning to trust. You can actually see this in our passage. You can see the connection of waiting and trusting at the end of verse 5. Because sandwiched right in the middle of the waiting at the beginning of verse 5 and the waiting at the beginning of verse 6 is the hoping that's at the be- in the middle or the end of verse 5. I will wait for the Lord. I will wait for the Lord. The psalmist sings in verse 5. And in His word I hope. My point is this. You will learn to wait 
only as you learn to trust, to hope in God, to believe God, to actually make the promises of God and His grace and His glory and His gospel, to to make those promises not just information and not just news and not even good news, but good news for you. For you. Christian, you must understand, this good news isn't confined to merely the psalmist. In fact, it's really good news for everyone. That helps explain what appears, at least at first glance, to be a sudden shift in the psalm, a shift from the singular to the plural. What do I mean? Well, look at the beginning of the psalm. What do we hear? Out of the depths, I cry to you. Or verse 2, O Lord, hear my voice. So at the beginning of the psalm, it's me, it's I, it's my But by the time you reach the end, by the time you get to verses 7 and 8, it's now shifted. Now it's, O Israel, hope in the Lord. It's no longer me, my, and I. It's you, it's y'all, it's Israel. Not only do you see the transition from singular to plural, but now the psalmist has something of an evangelistic zeal, doesn't he? By the end of the psalm, he is calling upon all the covenant community to trust God and to worship him. Verse 7 again, O Israel. He's saying, O people of God, O covenant community. Today we'd say, O church, hope, hope in the Lord. How do we account for this? How does the psalmist move from verse 1's cry of utter desperation to verse 7's cry of anticipation? Here's the answer. He has experienced the grace of God himself. This is really the key, beloved. He himself has felt the burden of sin released. He has tasted the choice meat of God's steadfast love Verse 7. He has drunk down the sweet wine of plentiful redemption. End of verse 7. He has confessed his sin. Verse 3. He has experienced pardon and forgiveness. Verse 4. And he has waited on God. Verses 5 and 6. He's done all of this. It's in his bones. It's the air that he breathes. It's the water that he drinks. And now he is calling upon us to do the same. And all of this, don't make the mistake of thinking that this is just sort of optimistic zeal. It's not like the psalmist, through the course of this song, sort of changed from a pessimist to an optimist. He's he's not just a half-full kind of guy. He actually anticipates the redemption of all of God's people. Verse 8 is stunningly clear. And he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. Not he might, he will. Church, the psalmist is confident God will save his people. Why? 
because God delights to do so. I am pretty confident that if I put a big bowl of huckleberry ice cream before my daughter, you know what's going to happen? She's going to devour it. And that is because she loves huckleberry ice cream. Well, similarly, God delights to save. His love is, verse 7 again, steadfast. And his redemption is, again, verse 7, plentiful. It's a love and a grace and a mercy and a kindness that is committed and overflowing. So much so that in the gospel, God pulls out all of the stops. All of the obstacles that we have erected, God flattens them. And he flattens them so that he would redeem us. Nothing can get in his way. Just as a husband will move heaven and earth to be near his bride, so God will do all that is necessary to bring his people near to himself, even to the point that God's own Son would take on human flesh for us. And so just as the psalmist has tasted and seen and felt and experienced, and leaned into the grace of the gospel. So he is confident that so too will all of God's people. And you know what? That includes us. God has made his covenant promises to us. They've been sealed to us in the blood of his Son, and they have been made ours by the ministry of of the Holy Spirit. So just as the ancient people of God sang this song, this wonderful pilgrim song on their journey to the temple for worship, so too we can sing this song. And that's because, brothers and sisters, we too are pilgrims, aren't we? In fact, 1 Peter 2.11 addresses the church this way, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners or pilgrims. Hebrews 13, 14 echoes, for we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. This is not our home, brothers and sisters. We are pilgrims. And therefore, this pilgrim song, it should be on our lips as well. Since this is the case, Allow me to conclude with several applications. More specifically, here are four exhortations to us pilgrims. Four starters, and let us never grow weary in saying this. We can always cry out to God. You might be here this morning and not be a follower of Christ. If that is true of you, then verses 1 and 2 are your refuge. You are never too far gone to cry out to Christ. No matter the depths, no matter the sin, no matter the situation you find yourself in, there is grace to be had in the mercy of Jesus Christ. So I would call upon you today to call upon Him today. A second exhortation would be this. We ought to prepare our hearts 
for Sunday morning worship on Saturday night. Now, if you think that's coming out of left field, let me remind you. This is a song of ascent. It was sung on the way to worship at the temple. Or to say it another way, this was a psalm sung to prepare the heart for the gathering of God's people in worship. So Christian, I would encourage you to prepare your heart for worship. And you have to understand that that begins on Saturday evening. Which means that you will discipline yourself to go to bed early. It also means that you will not fill your mind with things that will, dis- that will distract or take away your affections from Christ. You'll also want to prepare your heart for worship on Sunday morning, on Saturday evening, by spending your time in God's Word and in prayer. Brothers and sisters, you'll even want to eat and drink on Saturday evening and Sunday morning what is conducive to you being alert and engaged on Sunday morning as opposed to eating and drinking those things that will cause you to be slothful and apathetic. Church, God has sanctified Sunday for worship under the new covenant. And part of our job as Christians is to keep today, this day, holy. And my point is this. That will begin on Saturday night. Let me give you still a third exhortation. Forgiveness leads to fear. Forgiveness leads to fear. Verse 4 again. But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. I would ask you, do you see how the gospel works in the heart by the Holy Spirit? You see, to the natural man, and by that I mean the one who isn't born again, the unbeliever, the one who by nature hates God, the gospel from that perspective, it would seem to promote licentiousness. That, that individual might think to himself, well, it's my job to sin and God's job to forgive, right? That person hears the gospel is all about Christ and what he has done, and I can do nothing but receive this by grace alone through faith alone. And in the heart of the unregenerate, unaided by the Holy Spirit, that person thinks, well, shall we continue to sin that grace may abound? That attitude springs from a wicked and dark heart. God's prerogative and grace to forgive us in Christ, it should cause you and I to feel a measure of caution and fear. Not to be cavalier and flippant. Brothers and sisters, our response to God's goodness It should always be one that is mingled with reverence. As those who are robed in the righteousness of Christ, we should also desire to be robed with an attitude that longs to please Christ. 
And when we don't, we should be humble and devoted and broken and reverent. Because forgiveness leads to fear. And then fourth and finally, I would call you this morning to rest in Christ and Christ alone. Verse 4, one last time. But with you, there is forgiveness. Church, we are pilgrims. And over the course of our journey toward that celestial city, there will be no shortage of pseudo-saviors and bootleg Christs. The world churns them out. The devil promotes them. And our flesh gravitates toward them. But true forgiveness, actual forgiveness... It is found only in the true and living Christ. And the true and living Christ, he was born a man to redeem mankind. He lived a perfect life under the law of God, meriting righteousness for you and I. He then died a horrific sinner's death under the wrath of God on your behalf. And then three days later, he was raised from the dead, promising that all who trust in him, they too will likewise rise from the dead. Weary pilgrim, this is your Christ. This is the Christ we worship. This is the Christ we serve. This is the Christ who first served us. So rest in Him. Rest in Him and Him alone. Let's pray for help this morning. Our gracious Father, we are weary pilgrims who are journeying from our home in this evil world to the celestial city. And we are tempted on all sides. We are weak. Our faith is futile. Sin seems to ensnare us. Our hearts are often divided. We hate to wait. We hide our sin. Forgive us. Have mercy upon us. Illumine our minds and stir the affections of our heart even now by your Spirit as the gospel of Christ is read and prayed and sung and preached and even momentarily seen. We pray that you would do all of this for our good and for your glory. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.